These are very, very long journeys that we're on. And it takes time and patience and spectacular people and a massive market opportunity to build the real companies that matter and have an influence and great impact on society. Google, Yahoo, YouTube, and PayPal. Michael Moritz of Sequoia Capital has helped launch some of the globe's most recognized tech companies. He's done it, he says, by continually educating himself. At a View from the Top event at Stanford Graduate School of Business, Moritz talked with students about his start in journalism and his strong belief in not trying to be an expert in everything. You're listening to View from the Top, the podcast. You've clearly had a very impressive career, but before becoming one of the top... That's not what my mother says. (laughs) Before becoming one of the top venture capitalists in the world, being knighted by the queen, you were a boy from Wales. What did you want to be when you grew up? Um, I actually... Not that this game or sport is played in America, um, and so it won't translate. I wanted to be a cricket player, um, a cricketer but I was a coward and the ball was very, very hard. And um, so I spent most of my time in sport, whether it was cricket or rugby, trying to avoid being anywhere near the ball. So um, (laughs) um, I have a friend actually who became a spectacular rugby player. He played for Wales, which, uh, and I told him that the only thing that separated him and me on the rugby field was when he took to the field, he wanted the ball to come in his direction. (laughs) And I, of course, (laughs) wanted the reverse. I never wanted to see it come in my direction. So, um, but as I got a bit older, I uh, became interested in journalism. And uh, um, when I was at Oxford, I I knew that I wanted to be a journalist when I was at Oxford. So, I'm interested in the story of how your family came to Wales. It was uh, quite inspiring. Your parents actually escaped uh, Germany during the Second World War, arrived in in Wales as refugees, in the UK as refugees. How did their struggles and their experience shape you early on and sort of what you wanted to do with your life? Well, they, they were very lucky. They didn't escape during the Second World War. They escaped beforehand. Not many people escaped Germany during the Second World War. Um, and uh, my uh, father um, um, left Germany. He was born in Munich and uh, uh, went to Britain uh, when he was a 14-year-old. My mother went um, on something called the Kindertransport, which was um, 10,000 kids from Germany, basically, that were, that were rescued and put in with... Uh, uh, in foster homes. And uh, they then uh, met... Uh, subsequently in Britain and after the war, um, they, uh, they got married. And, um, you know, those are searing experiences, difficult. And I'm sure, everybody, you know, there are people here either who have um, firsthand familial experience of something as disquieting, unsettling, and wrenching as those sorts of experiences. But... Um, those are the experiences that come down through generations. My father's father served in the German army during World War I. He was decorated. He 
and um, my father's mother was a nurse in the German army during World War I. And then both of them um, were killed. They were murdered uh, by the Nazis. And you know, my father died about 15, 16 years ago. Um, my mother, whom I saw last week, is 95 and still vibrant. But those experiences, they color everything. They hang over everything like a, like a dark cloud. It is always the anxiety and the fear of the whole world being ripped out from underneath you, and it, and it, uh, and it colors the way that you live, yeah. understandably. And that drives you today still. Well, I, I don't know about that, but um, it certainly uh, had a profound effect on, on, my, on my parents. And, and, and they came to Wales as outsiders. And um, obviously Britain, I owe everything, my parents owe everything to the fact that Britain opened its borders and allowed them to settle there. But it was not easy. They were uh, in a minority. Um, there weren't exactly, I mean, I was one of, um, I think, three Jewish kids at the high school that I went to. So I've always, you know, one always felt uh, an outsider in the delineation between religions in Britain, which is, you know, 40, 50 years ago was very, very sharp. And so if you didn't belong to the majority, it was very obvious that you were on the outside. So yeah. that's obviously had a huge effect. Yeah. Well, you did them very proud. You worked really hard. You would get into Oxford. And I'm sure you had many opportunities professionally in Europe. But you decided to come to the United States. Why, why the United States? Well, I didn't have many professional opportunities in Europe because I grew up in... Um, the, in the Britain that predated Margaret Thatcher. And uh, uh, those were extremely difficult times um, uh, in Britain. I mean, obviously, Britain's going through its own issues today with Brexit, but the times in the 1970s, um, people who weren't around, and there's no reason that anyone here should, should know about it, but it was a strike-ridden um, country where you never knew whether the electricity was going to work, whether there was going to be a gas strike, whether the railways would run, or whether the newspapers would be delivered because there'd be a wildcat strike. And I wanted to be a journalist, and I wanted to work on Fleet Street, and I wanted to work for the Times or the Daily Telegraph or the Guardian or one of the big broadsheet newspapers that at that point dominated journalism in Britain. But because of union restrictions, um, the Fleet Street newspapers, the big newspapers, were not permitted to hire anybody straight out of undergrad. You had to go and serve a multi-year apprenticeship on small provincial newspapers. And um, I had no appetite in doing that. I just I wanted to work on Fleet Street. I wanted to sort of work in the Premier League, so to speak. And... Um, I had a, I went to see a, um, a gentleman who was the editor of the Daily Telegraph, a fellow who, I mean, he was a Fleet Street legend and uh, a character on whom Evelyn Waugh had based the novel Scoop, uh, which is hilarious if, if uh, you've never read it. 
And he said, if I was your age, get out of Britain, go to America. <laughs> and that was, the, that was what sent me to America. It was that sort of weird, peculiar encounter. Um, and I often think about that. That's, that's what made me up sticks and leave. I mean, well, you know, I, and I, I was lucky. I, got a, I wouldn't have been able to come to America had I not got a scholarship because I didn't have the money and all the rest of it. And, but I got lucky in that. And I came to America, this is 1976, not knowing where anything would lead, um, but um, have obviously stayed here. Yeah, 40 years, you said. So you started out, when you got here, as a journalist for Time Magazine right. in San Francisco. Uh, Actually, not in San Francisco, in oh. Detroit, of all places. In Detroit. Covering the first collapse of the Chrysler Automobile Company. Uh, and then you made your way to San Francisco to cover technology. And during this time, you got to know Steve Jobs. What do you believe made Jobs such a unique innovator and leader in the time that you spent with him? Uh, so this is, again, this is a long time ago. This is 1980. And uh, Microsoft was a company that I remember going to an event at, at Apple, uh, one of these sort of management events, small management events, probably this was 1982 or 83, and um, um, Steve had a, a sort of fireside chat like this, and he asked the guest, a fellow who at that point was a Morgan Stanley analyst called Ben Rosen, who later went on to found a very successful venture capital firm. He said, so Ben, pick the year when Microsoft you think Microsoft will break the $10 million revenue barrier, right? $10 million, and Ben was scratching his head. So it's a very, very long time ago. But um, <laughs> that was the only point I was lamely trying to make. And, uh, but I, I realized I hadn't met anyone like Steve. Um, I'd spent time with a fellow called Lee Iacocca, who was a living legend in American industry at that point and had been the president of the Ford Motor Company and then became the CEO of Chrysler. And Steve was the first person whose salesmanship was on a par with Iacocca's. Iacocca was just mesmerizing character. But he didn't have the product and engineering attributes that Steve had. And obviously, there was a difference in age of probably 35, 40, 35 years or so. Uh, but Steve was a spellbinder. And um, I, uh, uh, and obviously, uh, uh, as everybody knows these days, uh, a very difficult and complicated character, but he was an extraordinary, and even though I had lots of, I had all sorts of issues in dealing with him, have nothing but, you know, massive admiration uh, for what it is that he eventually went on and uh, went on and did. And, um, but as I said, it's a long time ago. And I think at that time, I probably held a minority opinion of of how spectacular an individual he was because later he was, again, ancient history, he was fired from the company that he founded. 
which to me always seemed like a real travesty. So following your time with Time Magazine, you would make the switch to the venture capital industry by joining Sequoia, which is very uncommon. How did that happen? Well, I'd left Time because while I'd enjoyed four years or so as a journalist, I also got frustrated. It was a big company. I was working on the periphery of it and sort of, for some reason, it always felt I didn't want to be a journalist if I'd known when I was 30 years old. And I had that as some sort of mental benchmark. Goodness knows where that came from. I think it was largely because, again, back then, I saw what happened to people. It was eye-opening to me. I saw what happened to people who stayed in journalism and were 60 years old. And uh, certainly if they worked for time, which was a sort of cushy job, but you got sent all over the world and you wound up um, as an alcoholic. <laughs> which didn't appear to me to be a really beckoning career trajectory. <laughs> uh, and so I left, and together with somebody else, I started a little company um, that um, published newsletters, staged conferences about the technology industry. Mm. And uh, so much for my... And, and that fella stuck with it, and eventually, many years later, no thanks to me, um, Dow Jones bought that company. And, um, uh, but I always felt it was going to be a small company. And I had, through my work at Time, through my work at this little company, I'd met a lot of people around the technology industry and um, had met a lot of people in the venture capital business. Time had run a cover story that I had... Uh, reported on uh, that had, about the venture industry that had Arthur Rock, who was the original founder of in uh, Investor in Intel and then of Apple, on, on the cover. And, and during the process of that, had uh, met a lot of people in the venture business and had always, and had, when I came to California, I didn't know anything about Silicon Valley, didn't know anything about the venture industry, and had got interested in it. And, um, and made a list of five firms uh, where I knew somebody, wrote to them. You wrote to them in those days. You didn't email them. And um, got interviewed at all. Got rejected at uh, four of them. Um, journalist, history major, no experience working in a Silicon Valley company, therefore totally useless. Um, <laughs> Probably correct on most of those counts. <laughs> um, and then Don Valentine, who was the founder of Sequoia, um, decided that uh, he needed to do something to change Sequoia's image with minority hiring. <laughs> and so decided to hire a history major. <laughs> And, uh, but it was a head-scratcher for most of Don's uh, peers in the venture business, wondering why on earth he was wasting his time with somebody like me. And uh, so, so that's how it happened. It, it was great <laughs> good fortune. I, if Don had said, uh, uh, voted like the others, and, um, I don't know what I'd be doing. So in the era of the prized engineering degree in Silicon Valley, what value does that broad-based humanities education bring, given that about 50% of last year's incoming class uh, came in with a humanities undergraduate degree? What value does that bring to the technology ecosystem here in Silicon Valley? What do you think? 
Well, I obviously have a prejudice and bias. And um, knowing full well that I wish I understood more about the details of technology and engineering and all the rest of it. But if you're in the investing business in Silicon Valley, you cover such a wide waterfront of investing that it's very difficult. You can't be, no matter how numerate and technical you are, you cannot be an expert in everything. So the ability to be able to, and this is much like being a journalist, to start on an endeavor where you know nothing, where you gather a lot of materials and facts, where you have to distill all of those facts and then form a cogent opinion and make a decision. It's not unlike writing a story, writing a history essay, or making an investment or helping to determine an investment. What comes after that, after making the investment, all the sorts of things that these days go towards helping a little company that might be composed of three people becoming something significant, that's a very different set of skills, which I think just experience brings along. It doesn't matter whether or not you have a technical degree or anything. But and then the ability to be a storyteller and a clear communicator. I think those are really very, very helpful pursuits. But again, as I said, I have a bias and prejudice. And I was looking at the numbers, you know, at Stanford, for example, you had 64, 600, if I've got the numbers right, which is roughly right, you had 647 undergrads in 1965 who were history majors in 19. In 2014, which was the last set of data that I saw, you had 84. So there are threatened species around here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you put those skills to good use at Sequoia, given that it's consistently listed as one of the top venture capital firms. And I have to get this statistic right, because it kind of blew my mind when, when I first saw it. So since 1972, Sequoia has backed companies that now have an aggregate public market value of over $3.3 trillion. Uh, to put that in relative size, that's larger than the current GDP of the UK. Um, what are the most... <laughs> nice work. <laughs> so... Put down. <laughs> so what do you think are the most important leadership traits needed to build enduring organizations such as Sequoia? Well, that's nice of you to say. Uh, obviously, that's a, a question that's at the heart of our, um, heart of our pursuit as Sequoia and also at the heart of the pursuit of the very distinctive companies that we would like to be an investor with. And being able to think and work in 20-year increments is such an advantage. Um, and I know that sounds a little weird and a little peculiar, but, and obviously you can talk in a, a grand fashion about a 20-year plan, um, and it all sounds very good, but then you also have to work on what this afternoon brings. But having a sense of eventually 
where your compass is heading and where it's set and the trajectory you want to go on and then breaking it down into all sorts of little steps, knowing that every step along the journey is going to require different people, different skills, different relationships, different uh, virtues um, that you're constantly going to have to change along, along the course and reacting to changing circumstances, changing market conditions and all the rest of it, but never losing sight of eventually where you want to go. I think that's the biggest thing that, um, that has helped with us and helped with some of these companies that uh, we've had the good fortune to be involved with. Now, Obviously, not everything works out like that. A lot of companies start, and uh, maybe they flourish for a certain period of time, and then they're sold. Or, but the ones that we're looking for, I mean, it's now, where are we? Uh, 2019. It's 20 years since we invested in Google. Right? I still own the majority of my Google shares. And when... When somebody asked me today, why are you interested in, in, why is Sequoia interested in investing in our company? I, I, I'll always say to them, if, if I think it happens to be true in their particular regard, because some companies don't fit into that, it's because if we're all fortunate, if the sun shines on us, we can be shareholders in your company 20 years from now. That's what, we, today, Airbnb, I think we invested in Airbnb $600,000 in 2008, I think, it may be 2009. It's 10 years. Happens like that. And the company's still private. Stripe, which is a payment services company, we invested in when it was three or four people. That was 2010. Again, nine years, nine years later. These are very, very long journeys that we're on. And it takes time and patience and spectacular people and a massive market opportunity um, to build the real companies that matter and have an influence and um, great impact on, uh, on society. And you and Sir Alex talk about the importance of identifying high potential talent in building these types of organizations. So the example he used is a footballer, some of you may know by the name of David Beckham, who was pretty good. Um, what characteristics are you looking for when trying to identify this high potential talent, whether it be a founder or somebody you hire at Sequoia? You know, whether it's, uh, whether it's part of the reason I, or the, the reason that I, I approached Alex to write the book about Manchester United was that, uh, for whatever perverse reason, people have been asking me to write a book about Silicon Valley or Sequoia, and I had no interest in doing that, but I was interested in writing about um, enduring organizations. And I picked United because it was a long way away from Silicon Valley, but because I knew that he shared the approach that we cherished as well. One of which, Patrick, was the one that you just fingered, which was identifying people when they are young and then helping them develop. And why? Part of it is because you're not taking a lot of risk. Beckham, I think, you know, they, they, they knew about Beckham when Beckham was eight years old at Manchester United. Now, we're not going around Stanford looking for eight-year-olds, but um, 
we do like hi hiring at Sequoia people who are young because it's a business that even though it looks simple and today I understand everybody's an investor from someone who writes $5,000 checks to somebody who writes a much bigger kind of check, but to do it well in the fashion that we like to do it takes time and patience and persistence and uh, a willingness to learn. And assuming people like that flourish, you have incredible loyalty and they'll stay with you forever. And um, so that was true for a lot of the players who played for Sir Alex. It's, and I think being able to grow organically like that, it's such an enormous competitive advantage where you have a stable team of people which you're always amending, you're always changing. Someone is perhaps no longer playing as well as they used to play, so you figure out a way to deal with that. But then you're always replenishing the bench. But you're doing it in an imperceptible fashion to people on the outside so that all they see is, you know, in the soccer metaphor, the winning team on the field without realizing that actually, you know, there are two players on there today who weren't on that team 24 months ago. Uh, but that's worked spectacularly for us. We've got these great, you know, Roloff Boto, who's a, a, a graduate of GSB, and he became, he went to PayPal, and after PayPal, he joined Sequoia. And that was probably now eight, 17, 18 years ago. And, you know, he's just, Spectacular. Just, he's just one example. We've got a whole bunch of other people like that, so it's great. One of the characteristics you mentioned that I was, I was really intrigued by is this idea of obsession. So the best founders, the best athletes tend to be obsessed with whatever it is, the thing that they're working on. I was curious, what do you think obsession means to you, and how does it, how does it feel? Like, how do you know it when you see it? There's a gentleman called Apoorva Mehta, who's the founder and CEO of Instacart, the online grocery company. And we're, we've been with Apoorva on his journey for a considerable period of time now. And before we invested, I asked him um, how he had happened on grocery delivery as a business that he wanted to be in. And he said he'd played around with and toyed with a variety of other businesses that he wanted to start. And he'd got down the road on, I forget, two, three, four of those. But he said the only one, or he realized Instacart was the one for him when it was the last, the idea of the business was the last thing that he thought about when he went to sleep and the first thing that he thought about when he woke up in the morning. And to me, that was as good a definition of obsession as, uh, as any I've, I've heard. But it's that sort of uh, full-on experience that, um, that um, you can never s stop thinking about and you, and, and you don't switch off. I'll give you another example from yesteryear which was, again, this is back to the early 1980s, and I had been up for, in uh, Seattle working on a story about Microsoft for time. And again, this was when Microsoft was still private and it was still quite small. And Bill Gates gave me a ride to the airport in his car. And um, not many people can say that they were chauffeured by Bill Gates. <laughs> 
In fact, I may put that on my LinkedIn profile. <laughs> Above all other forms of education. Um, and the, the radio was missing in the car. Big gaping hole in the dashboard. And I said, Bill, so what happened here? Did you get ripped off? And he said, no, I had it taken out. Why do you have it taken out? Well, I drive from my home to the office, which is seven minutes and 32 seconds, and then I'll drive from the office to the airport, which is however long. And he said, if I've got the radio, I'm afraid that I'll switch it on, and I won't be thinking about Microsoft. That's obsession. <laughs> I believe you. <laughs> So the funding environment right now, as you alluded to, is becoming extremely competitive. There are a record number of firms. I didn't allude to it. You alluded to it. <laughs> True. Um, there are a record number of new venture firms and capital in the market. SoftBank just raised a $100 billion vision fund. Sequoia just raised an $8 billion fund. Are there too many investment dollars chasing too few investable opportunities right now? So. Um, that's the line I've heard since 1986, uh, with one or two exceptions. Maybe 1991, 1992, and then right after the dot-com blow-up, when capital was, everybody understood that capital was scarce. It's always been a competitive funding environment. There have always been, look, how many, how many companies get financed and then how many become worth it, you know, become tremendously important companies. So if you just do that winnowing and look at the, the funnel, there are very, very few great companies. So everybody is madly in pursuit of those companies and, um, and therefore, and obviously there are these tangible examples of the enormous value that's being created in the world of technology in the last 30 or 40 years. Um, and so money has poured into the sector. But for us, it's always been this sort of an, almost always been this sort of environment where a really spectacular idea can get uh, raised capital, where somebody who's starting a company usually has choices of capital. I mean, that's the world that I grew up in. It's the world that we've always operated in. And I suspect it will be the world we always operate in. And it's just part of life in our business. So no bubble. You're good. Well, there, there are always, look, there are always things that we will have done, others will have done, that five, 10 years from now we'll say to ourselves, how did we ever do something as silly as that? Or wasn't it inane or crazy? Or we didn't anticipate this, that, or the other. Uh, so I'm sure we'll have egg on our face from time to time. Again, it's just an occupational hazard. So I want to talk a little bit about how Silicon Valley has changed. Um, there's conti there continues to be many discussions happening about how to make, make both technology companies and venture capital more diverse, uh, potentially beyond history majors. Uh, what responsibility does the venture industry have to fostering diversity in the technology ecosystem? I, I, the responsibility of the Valley of, of firms like ours is to identify burgeoning talent. And the more the merrier from, 
irrespective of gender, irrespective of background, uh, irrespective of, uh, of color. Now, that's easy to say, and it's a bland statement, and you will then rightly say, well, what are you doing about it, and what are you doing about it actively? So we're doing what we can, but there's only so much that we can do. Firms like ours are representative of social trends. And no, I sort of sense that this question might come up. So I'd turn the question around because I dug up the data on diversity at Stanford in majors. And it's shocking. So let me give you some statistics. So because I think it's a, it, this whole issue is one that all of us have something to do about. So, and I'll give you one little example, say from the math department in the undergraduate program here, and this is Jermaine. I have a friend of mine whose daughter is in the math department at the moment and is thinking about leaving the math department and switching to another major because she is surrounded by men. And so, in 1983, if you were an undergraduate at Stanford, there was only 22% of the students who had elected math as their major were women. Guess what that number was in 2014, which is the last year when data was available? 22% in 1983, 16% in 2014. If you're a computer science graduate at Stanford, the percentage of women in the class in 1983 was 21%. In 2014, 20%. So much as we would like to help, we invested in our first female CEO in 1985. We hired two investment partners at Sequoia who were women in 1993 who were biology majors because we were pursuing biotech. And unfortunately for them and for us, our biotech investment, no reflection of them. It was, it was just the general difficulties of, of uh, the biotech market. Um, we found it easy to hire them. Why? I'll give you the data. 1983, at Stanford, undergrad, biology majors who were women, 45% of the class. 2014, 54% of the class. So it was much easier for firms like us to hire them. And the only point I'm making is, we'll hire as quickly and as merrily as we possibly can. We have seven female investment partners today. We've got, I think, close to half a dozen female CFO, uh, CEOs um, that, we've, that we've backed, but we're a reflection of society, and we can only change as fast as the rest of society will change, but we're more than happy to do our part. We funded all these different initiatives to help, um, help uh, women in particular um, in technology. We have uh, um, one of our partners, Jess Lee, is working with something called Female Founders, but it's imperative for the high schools and for the universities of America to change before we'll see the real 
acceleration in technology, which I've got to say is a lot better today um, than it was 10 or 15 years ago. And I think, you know, if you look at the computer science numbers, those are the best numbers that I could find um, at, at Stanford. But even so, they're not overwhelming. In 1983, the computer science proportion, the computer science class uh, here, uh, undergrad, was 18%. It progressed, but in 2014, it was still only 28%. So there's tons of work for all of us to do. That's my only point. So I want to take our discussion beyond the valley because investing outside of Silicon Valley has become a very popular topic uh, as well for a lot of people, including Sequoia. Do you think this is still the best place in the world to start a company? Um, it's, it's here and it's in um, China. And there are trials and tribulations involved with, with both places. Um, and obviously everybody knows about how expensive it is and the cost of living and gross receipts tax in uh, San Francisco and all these other impediments that we wish weren't here. But my goodness gracious me, uh, much as people here will complain and moan about different aspects of Silicon Valley, you go to places elsewhere around the world, they all wish they were Silicon Valley. So it's a spectacular, fantastic place. Um, in, which to, in which to start a company. And then um, um, I was saying to your illustrious dean um, before um, I came um, while we were chatting backstage that I spent the last three weeks traveling in China and Southeast Asia. I mean, those are vibrant places. Uh, one of the very big changes, you know, China obviously everybody's read about, but Southeast Asia is really... Uh, pulsing with entrepreneurial activity. And that's a big change in the last five, five, six years. Everybody knows about India and talked about India, but Southeast Asia is uh, surprisingly vibrant. So there are lots of, you know, the big change from when I started in the, in the venture business a long time ago now uh, was the Silicon Valley, largely Silicon Valley, to some extent Boston. We had 100% market share, give or take, on the most important technology companies of tomorrow. That's completely changed. So that so much of the investment now occurs outside of the United States for a whole variety of reasons. So I want to get a little bit of advice before we turn it over to the audience. So I think we're all trying to determine how to focus our time, energy, and resources upon graduation. If you were to put yourself in our shoes today, what problems or industries would you be focusing on? And maybe another way to ask that question is, where is Sequoia going to be investing so we can skate to where the puck's going to be? Uh, well, that's um, assuming that we know what we're doing. Um, I've always found, you know, you go to any website, and every investor's website, um, despite the window dressing, they all look the same. And everybody's going to invest in, you know, you'll, you'll t whatever the buzz phrases of the era are you will read them on all the sites. And you know, today it may be um, data science and machine learning and artificial intelligence and whatever the attributes are. To me, the best investments are always the ones that don't fit in a convenient bucket. And, uh, and so you think about, I, I mentioned Airbnb a, a few minutes ago. You think about Airbnb, what bucket would you have put a three couch surfers in 
in 2008. And in retrospect, it all looked so obvious, oh, they're upsetting the hotel industry and all the rest of it. But at the time that we met the company, it was three young founders who were sort of sleeping on airbeds. Um, and it was sort of pigeonholed as this very niche service for young people. Who would ever have imagined? And I can point to any number of other investments that seem similar. So to me, it's, you know, we, years and years ago, Stanford, um, you know, this was an off yet another offshoot of the incredible fertile Stanford campus when we invested in Yahoo. The idea of investing in a company that gave its service away for free, this is 1995, was totally foreign. Came out of left field. So it's those investments, the ones that aren't the obvious ones, that are the really interesting ones. We invested some years ago in, uh, in DJI, which is a drone company uh, in China. Nobody had imagined it at the time that we invested to do, I, I think it did, I, I may be a bit off with the numbers, but $2 billion in sales last year from what seemed like a sort of little, you know, nice little consumer toy at the beginning of the investment, but which is now becoming a company of um, substance, particularly as it expands into industrial applications. So it's the, or we're not an, uh, unfortunately, we weren't an early in investor in Uber, but who would have, you know, luxury black car executive ride sharing, is that ever going to become a business? You know, if you switch the clock back 10 years, or whenever Uber got started, it's another one of those sorts of examples. So that's the thing to look out for. It's the, the unexpected. I'm going to move to the lightning round. Um, what last chance, anyone? OK. So I'll explain the format as we go. These are supposed to be fun. One word answers generally, but a couple lists. So prioritize the following in order of importance. Product, team, market. Uh, equal weighting. <laughs> Unbelievable. It depends. Um, fill in the blank. The greatest entrepreneur of all time is? Whoever invented the wheel. <laughs> wow. Talk about yesteryear. The greatest individual investor outside of the Sequoia Partnership is? It's obvious. You know where he is in Omaha. What is one company you passed on that you wish you had invested in? I wish it was only one. <laughs> uh, Uber. We became late-stage investors uh, in the company, but I wish we'd invested very early on. What percentage of success in VC is luck? Uh, 101%. <laughs> <laughs> the most underrated skill in a leader is? Listening. I thought you would have said discipline. What? I thought you were going to say discipline, for sure. Listening, 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 listening. listening. Yeah, it shows. Would you rather be Liverpool or Benchmark? <laughs> 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 uh, 
Uh, we just concentrate on beating them both. <laughs> Please join me in thanking <laughs> Sir Michael Morris for coming today. You've been listening to View from the Top, the podcast, a production of Stanford Graduate School of Business. This interview was conducted by Patrick DePrace Gallagher of the MBA class of 2019. Lily Sloan composed our theme music and produced this episode. You can find more of this podcast at our website, gsb.stanford.edu. Follow us on social media at Stanford GSB.